this week on the Backtable podcast. You know, from the beginning, organically, I wanted to make sure that the patients had a clear point of access to the institution, a clear person to help them navigate the very complicated multidisciplinary care they were going to need for head and neck cancer. But knowing that inequity in long-term follow-up is an issue impacted by social determinants, that is a focus for Donna is to assess patient follow-up, assess when I have said they need their MRIs and staying on top of it for them. We always have this sense that when the cancer is treated, everyone takes their breath and is like, ah, good, we're, we're past the danger. You know, we're out of the danger zone. But actually we have specifically paid attention to the long-term follow-up, the compliance with follow-up regimens, with imaging regimens and whatnot. And we have specific time that Donna dedicates to keeping a running look at that for all of our patients to try to proactively prevent some of the social determinants from impacting a patient's ability to follow up with us. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We're bringing you the best and brightest in our field and hope that you can take something away from our show to your practice. My name is Anthony Shane, and I'm taking uh, guest hosting duties today from uh, Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. I'm the pediatric ENT chief at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital and Labonner Children's Hospital. And today with me, I have Dr. Jeffrey Rastatter from Lurie Children's Hospital and Dr. Danny Chelius from Texas Children's Hospital. Go ahead, guys, introduce yourselves, and we'll get started looking at um, how social disparities impact health outcomes in adults and children regarding cancer. Thanks, Tony. I'm Jeff Rastatter. I'm at uh, Lurie Children's Hospital in uh, Chicago, Ann and Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago. That's what they like us to say. And Northwestern University. Even though Tony is playing host uh, duties here, filling in today, he's absolutely kind of one of our crew we've been uh, been working working with. And some of you may have heard our previous podcast, the three of us did together, talking about development of pediatric head and neck cancer centers of excellence. And so we're excited and uh, honored to be invited back to speak it uh, again. So uh, so thanks everyone for, for listening. Thanks, Jeff. I'm Danny Chelius. I'm a pediatric uh, otolaryngologist at. Baylor College of Medicine, and I practice pediatric head and neck surgery at Texas Children's Hospital in Houston, Texas. And I'm ecstatic to be back uh, here at Backtable with uh, everyone. And I do want to point out that Tony is definitely the best and Jeff is the brightest, which leaves me as the palest. So best, brightest, and palest. And uh, that uh, doesn't come across well in radio, but I promise uh, that's, that's the reality. Well, Thanks for being here, guys. And today we'll be talking about social disparities and social determinants of health. Let's start off first. What are social determinants? I know we've been working together for about five, six years. I was trying to do the math of when we actually started working together. And I think it was when um, Academy was in Chicago or Atlanta when I came up to you guys during a lecture. And I think mo most of our research has been on looking at pediatric head and neck cancer, um, starting with thyroid cancer and expanding. But lately, we started looking at social disparities. So what are social determinants and why are they important? You know, I think most medical schools at this point have classes or tracks to formally educate students on social determinants of health. And I think it's a wonderful thing because as I was coming up through medical school, it was something we were all aware was an issue, but we didn't have formal training in how to examine for and assess for social determinants of health in, in an organized fashion. 
And so now we, we see curricula, we see formal education for medical students and residents around considering and assessing social determinants of health. So I would broadly define social determinants of health as those aspects of one's life that are not directly biologically, physically related to health, but that impact your ability to access and collaborate in your healthcare with the medical system. Things like uh, your economic status, things like your geographic location, your physical access to healthcare settings, things like your language, your primary language. Are you speaking the language of the healthcare system where you live, or do you speak a different language as your primary dialect? Things like your transportation status. Do you have ready public transportation where you live or personal transportation, or are you working with a transportation status that is different from the overwhelming community that you're in? These are the types of things that we know can drastically impact access to care, your ability to collaborate with your care providers, to follow treatment recommendations, to buy medications, to have care for your children when you're attending your own appointments or when you're taking one of your children to an appointment that the other children can't come to. And so we know now to ask about these social determinants on an individual level with our patients, and we can assess for these social determinants across broad populations of patients to try to identify trends that can show us how social determinants are either aiding care or are being detrimental to a patient's care. And that's how I would broadly define it. Jeff, anything to add to that? You know, Danny, I, I think that was a great, you know, synopsis or summary of, uh, of social determinants. And, and we could probably just talk this entire episode on all of the aspects of uh, social determinants and what, what sort of factors can play into overall delivery of, uh, of care. You know, it's interesting when, I, when I started, first started seeing papers coming coming out, looking into how things such as social determinants would play a factor. It kind of started out as we would look at papers and we would look at like uh, insurance status. You know, did people have private health insurance or public health insurance or no health insurance? And how does, how does that impact overall care? That was my sort of first experience with papers that I'd love to hear Tony and Danny what, what yours was, but it seems like from the time it sort of began there, it's just really developed into a much broader field in terms of what are the various variables we can we can look at. I think those early papers looked at insurance status just because the information was there. We could look at databases and we had that information. But now what we're seeing is lots of uh, additional information in this broadly described as social determinants of health are being recorded such that we can now look at this at this larger scope and and just get more granular detail as to what factors are are associated with I, I'm, I'm being careful with what words i choose because we have to be careful not to say to assign cause and effect to something without proper research to assign cause and effect but we were we're starting to look at associations between some of these social determinants and outcomes and how people are, are cared for Ultimately, with the next step, going to be to start to try and answer the questions of why are why are things the way they are, and are there ways we can we can change the way we deliver healthcare, both related to social determinants and other factors, in order to optimize everyone's uh, care and outcomes. You asked what I was sort of first aware of in terms of the papers. It's really startling to think about 
uh, the level of awareness I had of this as a, as a young medical student versus now, 20 years later, how much of an organized approach uh, the, the data science can take to social determinants. As a medical student, reminds me of that old question uh, or the story of, you know, someone asks a, a fish, hey, how's the water? And the fish is like, what's water? What are you talking about? You know, not able to appreciate that water is literally the thing that makes it possible for anything else in that fish's life to happen. But the fish doesn't have a concept of it because they're just swimming around in the water. Well, I, I think we swim around in the milieu of social determinants of health and all of our patients do. And, and I think we were organically aware of it. And the first organic awareness I had of it that I can easily remember as a medical student was watching the differential access to renal care for patients with different sorts of insurance and in particular different uh, legal status uh, here in the United States. At the time, I was a young medical student. We're reaching back 20 years ago and I would watch people in different systems get very different access to dialysis, very different timing of dialysis, depending on a very obvious set of factors around their economic status, their insurance status, their ability to travel to the hospital for care. And in the worst case scenario, people who would only be able to get dialysis when they were absolutely in an emergency situation, you know, dying. And, and all these patients had the same underlying disease, more or less, and had the same need for dialysis, but the discrepancy in their access to care was very obvious to me as a, as a young medical student. As an ENT resident, it was very obvious when we looked at head and neck cancer care in different settings. The, the radiation machines, basically the same, but the ability to get a patient to the machine completely affected by their ability to travel, their economic resources, their ability to take time away from their work, their language status in our different healthcare settings that I was seeing between a county general setting, a private cancer hospital setting a privately insured hospital setting, a federally funded healthcare setting, very different access to the very same radiation for the very same head and neck cancers. And, and that was obvious as a, a medical student, but not as uh, you know, very carefully described and researched as, as it is in the, the current level of papers that we're, we're looking at now and in, the, in the, the type of evidence that we have now. Tony, what was your uh, earliest memories of starting to think about social determinants of health before it was even called social determinants of health? I became uh, really aware of this as when I was a young attending and we had a fair amount of no-shows and I would call them and say, hey, you all missed your appointment. and be like, oh, because our car broke down or we didn't have enough money for gas or we missed the bus. And we've made some accommodations to try to get patients who have socioeconomic issues in uh, at different times and be very accommodating to them. But it's not until recently that we actually started working on this as a group what, uh, and try to kind of approach this from a, a group standpoint and roll it out on a national scale once we finish our work. So I just want to ask you guys for the audience, how did we get started on this and talk a little bit about our, 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 our research that we're doing this right now? I, you know, I, I can comment, uh, on that, but there, there's a couple of things that, you know, I think that, uh, Tony, you mentioned that five, six or so years ago, it was that we, the three of us started working together just in general, based upon common interests in, in taking care of pediatric patients in general, but specifically, uh, head and neck 
tumors, both uh, benign and malignant. Yeah, and so we 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 started looking at at disease processes. But along the along the way, you know, I I, I think that the social determinants of of health kind of found us really because we were we were doing the the work um, of studying the, the the biology of tumors in these in these kids, and and part of it I, I think was just a, a movement in general to where social determinants of health is being looked at in in a lot of fields, including ours. So it started to make its way toward us like that. But then it really, it really sped up and got going when we, when we met David Feijong, who is a medical student at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine here in Chicago. And uh, he uh, currently is a second year medical student, but we've been working with him for a couple of years. He, he reached out to me through a couple of other contacts when he was at Mayo you know, prior to his time at Northwestern. And so in getting to Northwestern, he had just expressed an interest in otolaryngology research, pediatric otolaryngology research, and he had an interest in, in studying social determinants of, 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 of health. And so he brought the idea to us as well. So a combination of just a general movement and then David, you know, coming to us with his ideas. And, and I have, have to say that, you know, we get approached by medical students, uh, residents, uh, fellows all the time looking to be involved with research. And in general, we come up with projects for them. David has been different in that he is really kind of punching above his weight, so to speak, in that in social determinants research, he's really leading the charge. And I think that both Danny and Tony uh, would, would agree that all three of us, while we have certainly played mentor roles with David, he's He's taught us a lot in terms of uh, 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 some of this, uh, some of this work, and and some of the work we'll talk a little bit about today that we've been, been doing in terms of contributing to the field has been methodology that's very much been described and and written and created by David uh, through his hard work and, uh, and and perseverance with research. So that's uh, I'd say that's how we we sort of got into it. It's been a, been a couple of years now of a, of a lot of work, and some of the papers are starting to go into into publication now, uh, and and we're, we're seeing those contributions out there. But it's been a couple of years now working with uh, David and several other students, along with the three of us. I have to say that getting to meet David and see his intellectual approach to this research has has been eye opening for me. There have been a number of papers over the years looking at how any one of these social determinants individually may have some degree of impact on a disease process. There've been countless publications to that regard, but the beauty of the approach that uh, David takes and that, and that we have now taken in, in our research is to actually look at the, uh, the interrelatedness of all of these different social determinants in a, in a more organized fashion. This is not for the most part intuitive. You know, we can guess what social determinants are going to affect access and care in certain ways, but, you know, you would think that a, that a medical system full of people with good intentions, good hearts, who want the best for their patients would be able to anticipate the way the social determinants are going to affect us and which ones are the most important and then fix them and have a simple fix for it. And the reality is we all know that's not the case. And so the thing that I really appreciate about David's approach is it takes a very comprehensive look at a lot of different social determinants, how they interact, and can sort of point us in the direction where we can make an impact based on the findings in a more robust way than any individual 
social determinant examination uh, camp. Yeah, that, that young man's going to have his uh, pick of ENT programs when he's ready to apply. Trying to make it so his car doesn't work so he can't leave Chicago. Well, I'm ready to buy him a plane ticket to come do an away here. I already have a house for him. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> In the work that we've done, what has been found how social determinants negatively impact health outcomes in general and specifically in the pediatric populations that we have been looking at? What, what have you guys found? I, I, can, I can start it off by just saying what, one thing we've noticed is we've, we've looked at the, the number of months or basically the time that people are being treated. You know, what, what do we, what do we see, see with that? And when you, when you look at social determinants as, as a whole, and by the way, we can get into a little bit of what these social determinants are, because some of it has to do with this, the social vulnerabilities index, which is, as Danny mentioned, a more comprehensive way of looking at uh, social determinants of health. There's four different pods, if you will, or buckets of social determinants, each with several related factors in there. We can go into more detail on that, but to get back to just the amount of time that people are surveilled with different tumors, and we find that as their their vulnerability score increases, meaning they they have more of these categories or factors or variables that that are seen as social social determinants that negatively affect their outcomes, they're sur- surveilled for a shorter period of time. And it's interesting. I think that we have to, you know, research one, one bit of research always leads to the next. I think we're now starting to have to look at, well, why is that? Is that that they're being found later because they had poor access to healthcare and they were diagnosed at later stages? Is it that after they get diagnosed, they get kind of some level of treatment and then get kind of lost to follow-up compared to people that are less vulnerable? It would behoove us to figure out why if we want to optimally treat these patients. But what we know now is that people who are more vulnerable as measured by these social determinants of health are being cared for, treated, and monitored for shorter periods of time than patients who are less vulnerable. I think we also have seen that for certain diseases we've looked at in pediatric head and neck cancer, increasing social vulnerability across these different themes, which I can summarize in a minute, but Increasing social vulnerability has been associated with presentation at a more advanced stage and with, frankly, decreased long-term survival. Now, this is across a population. This is generalized. It's not speaking to any individual patient. And there are certainly going to be uh, exceptions to this. And so, but we, but we see the, we see the smoke when, you know, obviously where there's smoke, there's fire. I can just describe briefly the, the different theme areas that we look at with the social vulnerability index. There are basically four different themes. The first one is socioeconomic status and things that factor into socioeconomic status include the poverty in a, in a given geographic area, unemployment levels in the area, average income levels in the area, and high school diploma status. So those all factor into the bucket of socioeconomic status. The second theme is um, household composition, which would include household members greater than 65 years old or uh, household members who are uh, under 17, so basically at the extremes of age, disability status of members of the household, and single parent status in, in the community. So things that will, will affect the housing, household composition. The next major theme is uh, housing and transportation, and that includes the number of multi-unit structures in a given geographic area, the number of mobile homes, evidence of population crowding in an area, evidence of uh, tr- uh, personal transportation availability, whether or not someone has a vehicle on average in the population area, 
And then the group quarters, so to speak, like the basic different living structures that people are associated with. And then final bucket is minority and language status. So whether or not someone is in a minority racial or ethnic group in the area in which they're being cared for or by the system that is caring for them. In general, that would include American Native or Alaskan Native, Asian Black slash African American, uh, Asian Pacific Islander. You know, these are these are groups that have been defined as minority status by multiple different Institute of Medicine and CMS uh, standards. And then uh, uh, proficiency with English. And uh, when this is rolled out in other populations, it will be proficiency with the, the language of the healthcare system where they're receiving care. So these are the different thematic areas. And we can take the social vulnerability index in a given locale and match it to the data reported for pediatric cancers in that locale to get a rough estimate of the social vulnerability index in the location where the patient is being treated. Now, most of these studies are not looking at the specific social vulnerability index of a specific patient, but are applying the SVI of their locale to the to the disease that's being treated to where it's being treated. So, for example, I found it was very interesting. I, I would e- expect or anticipate that minority status and language composition, specifically language, would have had a bigger impact, detriments in care than it turned out to have in most of our diseases examined. You know, for most of the pediatric head and neck cancers we looked at, language status actually was not a severe detrimental factor. But when you consider the institutions that are contributing to the, to the SEER database or to the databases where we're pulling from, many of them are in areas where minority language status actually is is not that much a minority. For example, Spanish in Texas or Spanish in Southern California. And so it makes sense that perhaps the healthcare systems there are better adapted to compensate for, well, to, to non-primary language status and uh, are actually compensating well for that factor. So for example, then I might take that information from the study as I'm thinking about how to make a difference for my patients and put my resources not into more language access, but perhaps into other social determinant improvements uh, amongst my patient population. Looking at, at the work that we've done, actually, I've given several lectures on this. I look at it as a positive, why minority and language status doesn't seem to be too impactful. And I look at it as a positive that the medical schools are doing a really good job in diversity training of our future doctors so that they, there is more focus on that. So yeah, that's a wonderful story, Tony, yeah, right? Yeah. Like that, that is, that is something awesome to take home from all of so this. So one, one of the lectures I gave was actually at our diversity seminar that was led by several of our medical students, one of whom, um, the leader just matched at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill program. So they got themselves a wonderful future resident and future leader. I do want to hop in there for one second though, Tony, and, and it's obvious to the three of us, but I want to make it very plain to listeners that we're looking at the social vulnerability index for specific pediatric head and neck cancer diseases. This is not to say that the, that the house of medicine in general is equally successful in minority and language status equity across all disease states and all patients. And we know that there are still, for example, huge, huge inequities in terms of maternal care, maternal fetal care, and 
So I think we have to be very granular with what we are applying the social vulnerability index to and what we're talking about so that we can be vigilant to try to continue to make improvements. That's absolutely right. And while there has been a lot of positive steps, more can and should be done on this topic um, as far as uh, other fields of medicine. I think that's right. And I, I think we also have to be aware that all of this is observational research and we're sort of looking at the you know, cross sections or snapshots or windows, however you want to want to say it as to, as to what's going on, but more work and thought needs to look into the why of, of some of these things. Cause it's not, it's not always immediately, immediately obvious in some situations as to why one particular factor might be associated with better or worse care than another, another particular factor. I, I think one, one thing that that is, is, is fairly clear is if, if you can't access the medical system, you're certainly not going to get the benefit of that, that treatment. So some of these factors more directly relate to access to care, transportation, for example, insurance status, uh, uh, for example, and some others. So if I think that the, this, you know, access to care for a while was a, was a big you know, word people were using. I, I, I hear that word less now and we hear more of this kind of social determinants of health and so on, but, but access to care is most certainly of, of significant importance within this topic that we're, that we're talking about. So in terms of like what the actionability or what can we do about some of these observations we're, we're seeing, I think one of the things I tend to, to think about are per, which of these factors that we're seeing that are leading to poorer outcomes or problematic treatment yeah, it is are related to access, and can we can we improve that for for certain groups of people? On that topic, are there any specifics in the, the work that's been done that has stood out for you in terms of a specific tumor type or a specific population type, which you feel may be an actionable item that you can implement? So organically, before we had this data demonstrating the poor follow up for some of these diseases. We already had the sense that an important component of my multidisciplinary uh, head and neck cancer program was going to be a, a care coordinator. And I have a spectacular care coordinator named Donna Layton. She's a, a nurse here at Texas Children's. And, you know, from the beginning, organically, I wanted to make sure that the patients had a clear point of access to the institution, a clear person to help them navigate the very complicated multidisciplinary care they were going to need for head and neck cancer. But knowing that inequity in long-term follow-up is an issue determined by so or uh, impacted by social determinants, that is a focus for Donna is to assess patient follow-up, assess when I have said they need their MRIs and staying on top of it for them. We always have this sense that when the cancer is treated, everyone takes their breath and is like, ah, good, we're, we're past the danger, you know, we're out of the danger zone. But actually we have specifically paid attention to the long-term follow-up, the compliance with follow-up regimens, with imaging regimens and whatnot. And we have specific time that Donna dedicates to keeping a running look at that for all of our patients to try to proactively prevent some of the social determinants from impacting a patient's ability to follow up with us. You know, I, I was going to say something, something very, very similar that I think the biggest change in, in my practice that, that relates to access is, is the development of the multidisciplinary team. I know where my expertise is in terms of the, 
the role that I play in caring for these, these patients. But what I do is not enough. Uh, if I can't get that patient to my office or get that patient to the operating rooms, uh, or they can't get to the, the chemotherapy you know, center, then we can't do our jobs. Physicians can't, can't do their part. So the couple of groups of folks that really come to mind and on, on our multidisciplinary team, social work, specific social workers who are very similar to what Danny's uh, a care coordinator individual does in terms of getting, keeping track of what's going on, reaching out to these families. You know, on the one hand, we could say, well, patients need to take their health into their own hands and they need to be their own advocate and so on. Well, you know, if you're, if your family is working extremely hard working two jobs, perhaps doing various things just to kind of keep food on the table, trying to get you to school, every, everything else, then it's difficult that a family that is very resourced and, and, and perhaps has two parents and three nannies to kind of help them with you know, keeping their, their lives organized. I think in the medical system, we can play a, a, a role and, and we do play a role and I've gotten better at playing a role in reaching out to these families through folks like social work. The other one that comes comes to mind are the uh, advanced practice providers, uh, nurse practitioners, physician assistants. We've had ex uh, significant growth in our department here in Chicago with uh, that level of, of care provider really taking on coordinator and leadership roles within our multidisciplinary clinic and trying to keep the ball rolling, so to speak, uh, and, and keep track of follow-up, keep track of compliance. Keep the physicians organized, remind us, you know, which patients we have coming up, what do we need to, you know, to do to, to manage and keep track of, you know, a lot of different things going on at the, at the, at the same time. One specific finding that I'm still chewing on, I'm still thinking about uh, what we do with it, how we contextualize it and what it means was we found that for increasing social vulnerability index, patients with rhabdosarcoma, rhabdomyosarcoma, were less likely to receive surgery. Now, the decisions around whether or not to have surgery for rhabdomyosarcoma in children are extremely, extremely complicated. But in general, smaller tumors that are more favorably located are more likely to have surgery, whereas larger tumors or tumors that are in unfavorable locations are less likely to have surgery. And so it's hard to see, other than the size of the tumor, it's hard to really predict why patients would have less access to surgery unless potentially the systems that they have access to are differentially considering the use of surgery in treatment paradigms. And so I think that what, what I take home from that difference is that potentially the different social vulnerabilities are giving access to different levels or paradigms of care that more or less incorporate surgery. It's one of the potential issues. Now, the other potential is that just the patients are presenting with more advanced disease that is not amenable to surgery, you know, disease that is um, distantly metastatic, for example, where surgery would become, which would put them in a higher clinical risk group in a, in a higher or less likely to use surgery up front. That is a specific finding that I am still chewing on and talking to our oncologists about is why, why is that the case and what does it mean for us in the care of children with rhabdosarcoma? On that note, we, um, when I saw that finding in the paper, I agree with you. I assumed it was because a lot of these kids are presenting later because they're more vulnerable and don't necessarily have access to even a primary care physician to be referred to a big center where this kind of treatment does or does happen. So we did a much smaller scale study at our institution 
uh, on something very common to laryngology is tonsillectomies. And we found that transportation, not even socioeconomic status, but access to transportation led to worse outcomes in terms of missing doctor's appointments, higher bounce backs to the EDs because they couldn't get to the doctor in time and they led to, uh, that led to dehydration and, uh, and admission. So what, what we instituted is actually all of the patients that we assess for transportation issues. That's one thing is we, we make it a point to assess for, for social disparities at our initial appointment. And the other thing is they have more frequent doctor visits scheduled. They don't necessarily, if they miss one, they don't have to wait to go to the end of the line to get another one. So for example, if I do a tonsillectomy, I'll schedule them two appointments, one at one week post-op, one at two weeks post-op. And even in cases where they don't necessarily need to stay overnight, I will keep them overnight to prevent bounce backs to the ED so I can make sure that the families are ready to go home. Now that's a much more scale study than what we're doing. So how do you think the future, what, what could we do in the future to address these, these uh, more challenging cases across a bigger community spectrum, not just within our local communities? I think it's a, it's a, it's a devoting resources to an issue, recognizing it as an important issue, the transportation, the, the, the follow-up. Um, again, as you were talking there, I, in, in my world, uh, I have a couple of social workers that come to mind who focus on our, really on our otolaryngology population. They're, they're in our division, but, but just by the nature of where they're needed, they end up spending a fair amount of time with the more complicated patients like the aerodigestive patients, which is a population also known to have many like higher social vulnerability scores than some other populations, and also the head and neck cancer patients that the three of us us here here manage. But so having the resources of the the social workers, hospital based systems where we can tap into transportation programs, getting you know I mean think about like us like, like now if you want to get somewhere, there's so many ways you can transport yourself on app-based programs, Uber, et cetera, there. So if, if we've got the, we have the, the vehicles and the wheels to, to move people, but you know, when you're moving patients, it's different than just, you know, you're an otherwise healthy person going to the supermarket, but you know, are there ways that we can really tap into the, into technology to be able to leverage the, the mass transportation that we do have to really just make it easier for you know, patients to get where they need to need to be? That's a really tough question, which is why I think none of us have answered it perfectly yet, although we're, we're starting to see small changes. You know, the thing that inspires me about the transportation issue is that if you look at disparities in adult cancers, there's great literature showing that a lot of those disparities fall out and cease to lead to differential outcomes in our local VA system where we have spectacular transportation networks to get our veterans from our region down to Houston for their head and neck cancer care. And, and so, you know, we would expect to see some of these disparities in outcomes for people who live far, far away or have no cars, but there's an incredible van program in the VA that brings the patients to their visits and they have great care coordinators helping navigate them through the system. And, and I look at the VA cancer care system as a shining light for what could be if we could figure out how to mobilize the resources for cancer care in other settings. I think that when I 
consider my general referral area, I think a lot about some of our patients who come from limited medical resource areas in the Southwest and South Texas. And there have been some really great partnerships that have formed between our surgical oncologists here in Houston and oncologists down in what we call the, the Rio Grande Valley, the valley in south, Southwest Texas. And we have had to try to increase communication between the groups in a regular fashion and have just taken small issues at a time to try to help get the patients the appropriate care in their community instead of having them make the six hour trip up to Houston. So for example, I know that one of my colleagues is a pediatric surgical oncologist in orthopedic surgery has worked hard on biopsy technique and modality with the local centers there down in the Rio Grande Valley to try to change the biopsy techniques and extent of biopsies in pediatric osteosarcoma, which has a huge impact on diagnosis and subsequent treatment in that patient population. And I know it's, it's not an easy thing to work on, but she is having a lot of success with her collaborators who actually work in practice in the, in the Valley in getting the most up-to-date care into the local communities. On the other hand, I can think of some disappointing times where disease state has been appropriately identified for a patient down in one of these communities or in uh, far West Texas, and an appropriate referral has been made. And for a ton of issues, it just takes the patients forever to be able to get to Houston for their care. Very fam family specific factors. And I think that we have very realistically in individual cases seen care delayed. And so I, I will just say, Tony, I, we don't have a perfect answer to this yet, except to be aware to it, to try to transition care into the local communities when possible, to collaborate with those providers when possible. And I will also say that a lot of the work that is going to be required to make a difference in this is not traditionally reimbursable work for the healthcare system. And I think we all have to be honest about that, that some of the work that's going to be required to improve outcomes is not the type of work that the system can bill for, cannot bill a provider for, but it's an amount of collaboration and amount of coordination that has to happen to drive care forward. And, and that is also not an easy fix. We have to be realistic about the resources we have. Definitely a challenging topic. And, uh. My final question is what's, what's next for the group? What, what are the next areas of focus, uh, in terms of research and how to drive this topic forward? Well, my next focus is to convince, uh, David that you guys are, are idiots, uh, so that he'll come to, yeah. come to you for residency. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that, I think we need to keep doing what we're doing, getting right now. I feel like we're defining the landscape. We're doing these um, these social vulnerability studies, these SVI studies, looking at the uh, the different tumor types, and and we're, we're and we've we've done the the pediatric tumors, we've done the adult tumors, we've looked at some specific tumors uh, in general. I, I think from a st from the field of pediatric head and neck cancer, we're getting to the point where we're close but not quite there yet of defining what the what the variables are, and then I I think we transition into looking at at the various variables that are most associated with poorer outcomes and we start looking looking to see what we can do about it is it still you know just just a matter of like improving 
transportation? Is it, uh, you know, education with different, you know, ethnic uh, backgrounds? Is it language? You know, what, what are the, what are the factors we can, or, or is it, is it a resource financial issue? I mean, like Danny mentioned that there are some things that need to be done that can't be specifically billed for, but does everything need to have like a, you know, a billing code to, you know, to, to be able to do it, or do we start looking at things kind of holistically? If we're just taking care of patients, and here's the the money that comes in for that, can we make good delivery of healthcare not be restricted by finances? Can can it can we be creative with how we structure the business, if you will, similar to how other businesses have to structure their themselves to maintain a, you know appropriate you know profit, et cetera, that they, they can keep the whole enterprise moving, moving forward, you know, with, you know, s- support from federal dollars, et, et cetera, without, you know, that constant feeling of, well, can we bill for this? Can we bill, bill for that? So, so looking at the finances of it, the overall structure of it, how our uh, insurances system is organized, how we deliver uh, healthcare to, to start to, to figure out how we can impact some of these associations that we're seeing, you know, with our studies. I think to uh, borrow from another one of my areas of work, I'm the coordinator for the American Academy of Otolaryngology's annual meeting. And about eight or nine years ago, my predecessor, Dr. Mark Wax, included a question in the call for science submission for presentations at our meeting about whether or not there were uh, women involved in the faculty for a particular presentation. And by asking that question, Every year, we have seen that increasingly the proportion of presentations that have women faculty members has increased, and it's increased dramatically, and it's been year over year. We've started asking the question similarly about URM faculty members, underrepresented medicine faculty members, and those who represent other groups that have traditionally not been well represented enough in our educators in medicine. And... It is not exclusively because we're asking the question that we're seeing improvements, but if we ask the question, people have to think about it. The people submitting presentations have to think about who their faculty are and if they are taking an equitable approach to who they invite to be part of their presentations. So we've been asking the question and we're seeing improvements in the representation amongst our faculty. Well, I think we have identified, and we've said this across broad populations, some social vulnerabilities that we know across a broad population are going to impact care. So now we have to, I think, transition. And the next step is to very granularly start asking those questions of each individual patient that is coming to us. And if we are asking the question, then I trust that the whole system is going to drive towards making improvements because we're focusing on asking the question at the individual level. So that that's where I think the most immediate application of this is for us is to start really surveying for these social determinants on an individual level with the new patients that are coming in. And I believe that will help our care systems focus on relieving the inequities associated with those social vulnerabilities in terms of access to care and longitudinal surveillance, things like that. That is a great answer from you both. Well, unless you guys have any, uh, final comments. I think we're ready to wrap it up. Well, I just uh, thank you, um, 
you know, Tony for stepping in as host and being a great partner in all this work. And uh, likewise, Danny, you as well. And uh, thank you to Backtable for having us uh, back again. It's been a pleasure. I hope you all enjoyed joining us here this afternoon. You can find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, and iTunes, amongst other podcast sites. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Backtable ENT. We love feedback. If you have any topics you're interested in and hearing, please email us any ideas, speakers, and if you ever want to come on the show. So thank you very much and we'll see you next time. Take care. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's Version Hess and Yvonne Ogrodzinski. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Kinnebrew. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.